0: Hi, I'm Mark Priestley. After a life spent in the elite environment of the Formula One pit lane learning how to win, this podcast aims to bring that elusive, high-performance culture into your daily lives. In this week's episode, we're looking at the power struggles in F1 and beyond, and we're taking a look at the Mercedes and Aston Martin F1 teams and asking, is it okay to take a short-term step backwards in pursuit of longer-term gain? Welcome back to Pit Lane Life. About how Formula One teams are so successful. Tiny things, but you only find those tiny things when you look for them. Of course, there's only one winner in every Grand Prix, so for everybody else, you haven't won, so it could be deemed that's that's a failure. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Pit Lane Life Lessons podcast. Uh, I want to thank you all for taking the time out of your day to join me. I appreciate what a commitment it is. To listen to an hour-long podcast, so wherever it is you are in the world, whatever it is you're doing, and however it is you're listening, I appreciate every single one of you. Believe me, thank you. Um, we've got a lot to talk about as ever this week. I've spent the weekend commentating on the Spanish Grand Prix for the BBC. Uh, it was an absolute honour. It's always a privilege whenever I get a chance to do this. Uh, not only because it's a prestigious job. It's a role that I would have only dreamt of as a kid, and I get that opportunity to do it. But also, when I'm involved in this role, when I am professionally working on a Grand Prix in this kind of way, I am fully engrossed in every single element of an entire Grand Prix weekend. Now, like many people watching from home, when I'm watching as a fan, I haven't got that amount of time to commit to watching and looking at every detail of every single lap that's driven over the entire race weekend from Friday right through to Sunday. But when I'm working on it, of course, that's exactly what I have to do. And I love doing that. I absolutely fully appreciate the privileged position that I'm in when I get that chance. And this weekend was exactly the same. I enjoyed every minute of it. I thought it was a decent Spanish Grand Prix, which we can't always say, can we? Uh, The championship has really come alive. And there were a number of stories Coming out of the weekend, both on track and off track, that I think there is value in exploring more of or delving a little bit deeper into and just seeing where those lessons from the pit lane can be taken from and where we can apply them to our own daily lives. It's the very reason I started this podcast and listening to the Grand Prix, watching the Grand Prix event unfold this weekend, talking to people behind the scenes, talking to people both on air and off air. A number of these little stories, some of them deep in the background of this sport, I think have uh, some elements to it that we can extract from the world of F1 and apply to our own daily lives or at least explore them further. And that's what I want to do in this podcast. So the first one that I want to start with was a little story that I'm not sure too many people picked up on. It's a story bubbling away in the background that's just emerging at the moment. It's a, uh, a story in its infancy, I think we'll probably hear more of it in the coming months. But this was a story around Formula One itself looking to potentially take control back of Formula One from the FIA. Obviously the way things run right now, the power within this sport is split between the FIA and Formula One. FIA essentially own the sport and they have leased the commercial rights to F1, to Formula One as a company owned now, as we know, by Liberty Media. Liberty's job is to try and grow this sport, is to build revenues, to get more eyeballs on the sport, to get into new markets and territories where they can grow it even further, because ultimately what they need is a return on their massive investment that they put into this sport a few years ago. They're doing that in all sorts of different ways, but I think one of the areas they're just starting to explore is whether they can actually wrestle full control or a lot more control over this sport than the elements in the commercial rights that they currently have. At the moment, it's the FIA that govern the sport, that run the sport, that produce the rule book that the sport is run from. They have quite a lot of say in lots of different areas around this sport. And I think Formula One, there's a growing feeling in in Formula One behind the scenes that as part of this massive investment, if they are going to commit their future to Formula One, if they're going to commit a massive amount more investment of time and money in growing the sport even further, they'd like to have an even bigger say on many more elements of how the sport is run in general. That's a story that I think is going to run and run. As I said, it's just in this conversation stage right now, but it's being talked, around, uh, talked about around the sport And uh, we know is definitely a thing which I think will develop. But the overall crux of that story, the overall message behind that story is that F1 itself would like a little bit more control or a little bit more power in the sport that they've heavily invested in. And it got me thinking even deeper about this whole idea of influence, power, control, who should have it? Is it a good thing? Is it something we should all be striving for? And when we do find ourselves in possession of that control or power, how should we use it? How do we use it? How do people use it? It's often seen as something that we should all be aiming for, isn't it? We should all be aiming to gain power in our lives, to strive for influence and control. It's something that's seen often as a measure of success. If you have power, you're a successful person, surely. In the world of Formula One, power struggles are not unusual, are they? They're happening all of the time. The various teams are often fighting amongst each other to have more control or more power than their rival teams. They want to influence the way the rules are shaped. They want to influence the way the stewards rule or decide upon the way those rules are implemented. We often see teams aligning themselves with other teams or supplying engines to other teams because they feel like that partnership or that alliance will give them more power or more control when it comes to voting on the big decisions within this sport. Inside the teams, we're all well aware of some very famous power struggles. Two drivers inside the same team often feel like wrestling power towards them or over to their side of the garage will give them the upper hand in a championship fight, will give them a small advantage in terms of which opportunities come their way, whether it's getting the optimum call on strategy, whether it's getting the first front wing of these new front wings that comes off the production line. If you've got the power and control, if you are the number one driver you might get that new upgraded part before your teammate. And that can give you the advantage. In 2007, after Lewis Hamilton began causing him problems both on and off the racetrack, Fernando Alonso took some fairly extreme measures to wrestle control back to his side of that McLaren team. At one Grand Prix midway through that season, Fernando turned up with a handful of little brown envelopes stuffed full of thousands of pounds worth of cash and handed them out to every single member of that race team not directly associated with Lewis Hamilton's car. It was an attempt to wrestle control and power and influence back to his side of the McLaren garage. It was an attempt to gain an advantage an attempt to re-establish his influential, powerful position within the team but it was an attempt that I'd never seen the likes of anywhere in motorsport in my entire career. Of course, different drivers have done similar things in different ways, but that seemed a very overt, a very obvious and extreme version of that power struggle that I've been talking about. We know the likes of Michael Schumacher did an incredible job of building a team around him to make sure that he had the power and control. He had it even written into his contract, I'm sure on many occasions, that he was the number one driver. He was the guy, he was the man who had the power and anyone else around him, his teammates had to play second fiddle. He established that control right from day one of working with a big team like Ferrari. So these power struggles are going on all of the time. And if we think about wider world, if we think about our lives, of course, it's exactly the same. Every office up and down the country and around the world has power struggles going all the way through it, every single day. And that can be from the obvious ones, the boardroom power struggles, people trying to wrestle control of a company. But way further down the tree, it's happening all the time. People jostling for position within a company, trying to climb up the the ladder of their career, looking for the big promotion or the big pay rise that comes with some more power or some more control. Often people are willing to clamber over other people in the same organisation to get that level of control or that level of power that they so desperately seek. And in the wider world of things like social media, we consider influence a measure of success. How many followers do we have on Instagram or Twitter, Facebook, whatever it might be? Because if we've got a big number, that gives us power. It gives us power over all of those people. We can influence those people, and then we can sell that influence to other brands as adverts and to bring in revenue streams. We can change the way people think. And that might sound just like a throwaway line from a kid's comic book cartoon, but in reality, of course, that couldn't be truer. That's an incredibly true statement when we have or find ourselves in a position of power, we also have to take on the responsibility that comes with that. So if we're spending much of our lives fighting for a position of influence or a position of power, a position of control, what are we going to do with it if we finally achieve it? If we go back to that example that I started this conversation with, the idea At its early stages right now, but an idea that Formula One might want to wrestle some control back from the FIA in terms of running this sport, effectively sideline the FIA into a more of a ceremonial position within this sport, something that isn't necessarily anything to do with the day to day running of the sport. Well, that's fine. That may well work out. That may be in the best interest of the sport, but only if Formula One take on the responsibility of having that level of control. Because as things stand, the responsibility for safety lies largely with the FIA. They spent the last 20, 25 years desperately making sure that this sport is as safe as it can be. And they've done a very good job of that because they put safety at the very top of their priority list. It came largely off the back of the deaths of Roland Ratzenberger and, of course, Ayrton Senna back in 1994. And they've made this sport an order of magnitude safer than it was prior to that dark day in May of that particular year. They've done a wonderful job because they took that responsibility incredibly seriously. Now, I'm not suggesting for one moment that if F1 were to take over in its entirety the running of this sport... They would not any longer put safety as a major priority. I'm sure they would. But let's not forget that their biggest influence, their biggest driver is that they need to turn a profit. They have put billions of dollars into buying this sport. They need to get profit out of that. They need to grow the sport. They need to generate revenues. Could that potentially conflict with the greater responsibility that comes with making sure the sport remains safe. Now, this is entirely hypothetical at this stage, and I'm not suggesting for a moment that Formula One would ever neglect that responsibility. But it's a very clear example that if you did gain that amount of power over a massive sport like this, the responsibility that comes with that power is just as significant. And so the question then arose with me around... Power in itself. Should we be striving for power? Is power something that we should all be aiming for? Is it a legitimate target in our lives? Should it be? I have this impression, I don't know if this is just me, but I have this impression that powerful people or the sentiment around power often throws up or conjures up images of, of negativity. Or if we think about the movies, it's the evil, powerful guy that's often the baddie. In the movies, it's often the underdog that ends up being the unlikely hero that overturns the might and the power and the strength and the control that the evil guy had earlier on in the film. So it throws up negative connotations for me, and it may just be me, but that's my impression of the way we grow up. The way society portrays powerful people is not always in the best light. So should we even be striving for power? Why do we strive for power if we do? Is it because that power comes with such a level of control? Is it because it may well come with financial benefits? In the corporate world, in the working world, as we rise up through an organisation, as we become more powerful, rising up the corporate ladder, typically that would come with a greater salary. So powerful positions are often associated with a giant pay packet, with financial recompense that go along with that. But also, I think power has this slightly darker side to it, this twisted, driving, motivating force behind it, where people often just want to have this element of control. I'm sure some people seek power because it may satisfy some egotistical motivations. Others might seek power because... Earlier in life, they felt neglected or overlooked in so many occasions that putting themselves into a powerful position can put right that wrong that was done to them years ago. Some people, I'm sure, will seek powerful positions because it enables them to have their voice heard, to be able to shout louder than those who don't have the power on their side. And that will enable them to force their opinions on others. We see that all the time across social media. But some people, and this is where I wanted to get to in the end with this, some people seek power and use that power, take that responsibility seriously and use that power for good. And the question I asked myself when I was thinking about what I was going to say in this podcast was, well, is striving for power or control or influence, is that always a bad thing? And the answer, of course, is no. The answer is that striving for a powerful position or a position of influence is absolutely a wonderful thing if you put that power and influence to good use, if you take that position of responsibility seriously. Power can be something that can be a force for good if it's in the right hands. Sometimes taking control of a situation might be the right thing to do because others around you simply aren't in control of their own situation, might be struggling to manage a situation, they might be struggling to regain control of their own lives and they need somebody, maybe a family member, maybe a friend to step in and take some control for a period of time until they can get themselves back under control themselves. One of the positions in our society that holds more influence than perhaps any other is that of a parent, but of course it also comes with perhaps more responsibility than the other as well. And I would like to think that most parents would use that influence as a force for good, would use that influence, that control, that power, if that's the way we want to term it, to shape their children, to guide their children and to set them on a path in life so that when they grow up and find themselves in similarly responsible positions... They know how to use it. They know how to influence others in the right way to guide their own children through the next stages of their lives. As our children get older, of course, as parents, we begin to gradually relinquish that control that we have over them and hand it over to them. We hope, of course, that in that position of influence that we had in the early stages of their lives, the lessons we taught them, the messages we gave them will set them up in a position to be able to regain control of their own lives, to keep control of their own lives, to make the right decisions that will keep them remaining in control of their own lives as they move through the really difficult challenges they're inevitably going to face. The point that I want to make is that there are leadership positions, positions of power and control littered all the way through society in almost every aspect of life. And the reality is, whether you have the name leader or manager in your job title, every single one of us at one stage or another in our lives will be faced with a moment where we have to lead, where we have to influence or control those around us. We might have to take control of a situation. Whether it's something we strive for, whether we crave that power and influence, or whether it's something that we stumble into, those moments happen all of the time. And my question is, if that power is something that you're after in life, if it's something that's a big goal for you, if you're climbing the ladder desperate for more control within your organisation, within your social setting, my question is, what are you going to do when you get there? If someone hands you that power or if you wrestle that power over into your direction, what are you going to do with it? It's a question I feel like we should all be asking ourselves long before the moment actually arrives. Do we really want that power? And if we do, what do we want it for? What's our end goal here? Is it just to make more money? Is it to force our opinions down the throats of others? Is it to change the direction of a company or change the direction that people around you are moving in? Is it to influence the way people think, to have them think more in your direction? Or... Is there a greater good that we could be using it for? I feel like society conditions us to believe that we need more and more power. That's our goal. We should be striving to get more and more power in our lives. As I said before, it's often a measure of success or seen as a measure of success. But it doesn't get us to ask the questions of why might we want that power? What could we possibly do with it? How would we handle it? Can we handle it? At McLaren, after years of being on the Formula One team as a mechanic and part of the engineering team, moving up through the organisation, all of a sudden I found myself in a position of leadership, in a position where I was now in charge of a team of other mechanics. I had no formal training for that. I had no past experience of leading a team of elite professionals in their field. And I feel like so many organisations do exactly this. They promote people because of a length of service in an organisation, not because they're the best leader, not because they're the best candidate to be moved up into a position of control within the business. They move them up because that's what you do when someone's been there long enough. They may be very good at their previous job, and so what we do is we take them out of that previous job, we put them in a new job where they've had no training and no preparation, and probably have very few of the skills required to do that job particularly well. I have mentored leaders across a number of industries now who don't feel prepared for the jobs they now find themselves in. And one of the things I always fall back on, one of the parts of my training that I give to these people is to ask them the questions, what is it you think makes a good leader? What do you think a person with this amount of control and influence in your business should be doing? What would you like a person in that position to do for you if you were still on the rank below where you are now looking up to the person in this role. And almost always what people want is somebody who has a level of understanding of what the people below them are doing, who has a level of empathy to try and understand what life is like for those people and therefore what they might need to help them, to assist them to do their jobs. People want a leader who is kind, who is thoughtful, who has time for them, who can be there when they need them, who will give them support within the roles that they all work within. And what I always say to the people that I've mentored along the way so far is, well, look, ask yourself those questions. Do you have those characteristics? Do you have those character traits within you? Can you be kind? Can you be thoughtful? Can you have empathy to those around you? Can you offer support to people in a role that you once held? Of course you can. You know that role better than anybody, as well as anybody. You know exactly the things they're going through and therefore you can start to support them. Kindness and empathy, thoughtfulness, these are human traits that are undervalued in the business world. We don't give them any credence when it comes to building a powerful business building a position of power within a business. That's not about kindness. It's not about thoughtfulness or empathy. It's about getting to the top. It's about being ruthless. It's about being cutthroat in your business decisions, almost trampling over those around you to climb your way to the top. But it isn't like that. Those people make the worst possible leaders because whilst it may get them to the top very quickly all it does is hamper the people below them. It stymies what they can produce, what they can achieve, and therefore it holds back what your organisation can achieve. Leadership and power should be positions where the kindness traits, the thoughtfulness traits, the empathetic traits of those people that find themselves in those positions can be utilised to their maximum, can be spread to an even greater number of people because you now have a position of influence. If you have millions of followers on social media, think of the good you can do with that power if you utilise those traits of kindness, empathy, thoughtfulness, understanding. The kind of things that make a good person, that make a good human, they can also make a really good leader. They are the very finest traits of a leader. And so when I found myself in a position of power at McLaren, unfamiliar territory, where I had spent years working on the cars, all of a sudden I was leading the people working on the cars. I fell back on those traits. I tried to embrace that side of me that I would have wanted a leader above me in an organisation to have. Of course, I had the professional skills to go along with that in terms of the specifics of what we do within our business. I'd spent years fine-tuning and honing that craft. I know how to make a Formula One car go more quickly. But I also know the people around me, and now in that position, the people beneath me also know how to do that incredibly well. They don't need me to tell them how to do that. They need me to support them in their roles. They need me to enable them. To do their roles, to give them the tools, the resource, the support that will enable them to do the very best job they can do. That's what a leader, that's what a person of influence and power and control, particularly in the business world, should absolutely embrace. So, to bring this particular subject towards a close, power is something that has to be respected. The responsibility that comes along with that power needs to be taken seriously. And if you find yourself in a position of power, you need to be able to use that in the correct way. You need to be able to use that for good, to use that in alignment with your core beliefs and values. If you are a good person, if you are a kind person, then that power can be a wonderful thing. It can have so much positive influence on the world. If you find yourself suddenly in a position of power... Where does your influence in that role come from? What are the leaders that you've worked under in the past? What have they been like? If they have been brutal, if they've ruled with an iron fist, if they fail to show any of those characteristics I was talking about, that doesn't have to be the way that you then lead. Break the cycle. Be the leader you wish you'd had back then. And if you find yourself facing somebody in a position of power or control in a position of influence somewhere in your life, in a social setting, in social media, in a digital world or in your organisation or even in your family. If you find yourself with somebody in a position of power who's not treating that responsibly, who's not using that for good or using that in a positive way, but using it in a destructive way, and there are many people like that, unfortunately, around the world, there could be a number of reasons for it. It could be that their only influence in terms of leadership has been a negative force. Maybe they had parents who were abusive, who were negative towards them. Maybe the only leaders they've seen throughout their life, building up to the position that they're in today, have influenced them in this negative way. And so maybe they now need a bit of support. Maybe they need to see a little bit of love, need to see that there could be a different way. Maybe the non-leader in that situation needs to step up and lead just a little bit. Influence in their own small way the person with the leadership title. Just because they have that leadership title doesn't necessarily mean they are perfectly placed to do that job. It doesn't necessarily mean they've been trained to do that job. And perhaps they haven't had the influences throughout their life that have given them the strengths and the skills to enable them to do that job in the way that we would like them to do it, the way that we need them to do it. So whether or not you feel today like a natural leader or a powerful person, a person that should have power, ask yourself the question, do you actually want that power? Is it something you're craving? But even if it isn't, if you had it, what would you do with it? Because one day, maybe out of the blue, you'll be faced with a situation just like that, where you are in a position of influence, where you are in control of a situation. It might be serious, it might not be, but what would you do? What skills and traits and characteristics do you live your life by and therefore can you fall back on when that moment arises? Hopefully it is things like kindness and thoughtfulness, Those traits are valuable in so many walks of our life, people ignore them when it comes to positions of power. And yet we shouldn't. They are the most valuable traits a powerful person can display. Remember that, think about that because the moment will come. At some point, whether you become a parent, whether you find yourself promoted into a position of control or authority within your business or organisation whether your friends suddenly turn to you to make a big decision. Whatever it is, understanding what your true core beliefs are, what your core values are, how it is you want to live your life, what sort of person you want to be. Because the kind of person you want to be is no different from the kind of leader you might want to be. Control and leadership is about taking people, teams or businesses off in a certain direction, in a direction that you believe is the right one. So before you ask yourself the question, do I want more power? Is power something I'm striving for? Ask yourself which direction you would go if you finally got it. To know which direction you'd go as a leader, you need to know which direction you want to go as a person. And so that is where the questions should start. OK, let's move it on to the second topic that I really want to cover in this week's podcast. And this was another story that emerged from the Spanish Grand Prix when the Aston Martin team turned up at Barcelona with a completely different car, an almost B-spec car. Now, that's not necessarily unusual, but what was interesting about this one was they turned up with a car that looked in many ways incredibly similar to to the Red Bull car. That's one of the class cars of the field. Now, a lot of the details were almost identical. They looked so similar. It was really obvious that this car had taken massive influence from the Red Bull design. And there were question marks about whether people had moved between Red Bull and Aston Martin. And did they take those ideas with them? Has there been some kind of dubious transfer of IP. Investigations will be going on at both teams and potentially furthermore at the FIA over the coming weeks and months. But it's not that controversy that I want to talk about. Because as the weekend went on, people started looking at that Aston Martin car and saying, well, OK, when they did this a few years ago, under the name of Racing Point, same team, previous life, Racing Points back in uh, a couple of years earlier had sparked the controversy over what was then termed the pink Mercedes. What they did then was they copied the design of the class leading car of the day, which at the time was the Mercedes and put that design onto their own car. They turned up the car that looked identical to the previous Mercedes car. And what it did for that team was bring them a considerable amount of performance, a considerable step forward in terms of performance. Maybe, as you'd expect, they'd copied the fastest car on the grid, so you'd imagine that's going to bring them more and more performance by doing so. Well, people think and thought the same thing about Aston Martin. They turn up to Barcelona with what seemed like, at least in part, a copy of one of the fastest cars on the grid, the Red Bull. So surely they were going to take a giant leap forward this weekend but they didn't. In fact, you could argue they maybe even took a step backwards. Their cars struggled over the weekend, they struggled in terms of the results, they struggled in terms of lap time, the feeling the drivers were getting seemed confusing and disappointment was the overriding emotion in most part of the weekend. So why on earth do a team put so much financial resource, time and energy into copying a car And yet that copy just doesn't work. It sends the team further back down the order than they were when they had their original car for the first few races. The questions have been arising all weekend around this. Have they made a massive error? And the point that I want to make, the reason I wanted to bring this story to the fore in this podcast, and I made this point over the weekend in my commentary for the BBC too, is that... This isn't just about Aston Martin turning up to Barcelona and hoping to take a step forward. This is about Aston Martin believing that this new direction that they're going in, complete change of direction with this B-spec car, will offer them more potential than the previous development direction they'd been going in up to that point. And it may be that it might take them a few weeks to figure it out, to get to grips with it, to fully understand this car before they can start looking at improving the performance and certainly anywhere near getting the best out of it. And I guess you could say a similar thing happened at Mercedes. Mercedes turned up to the first test pre-season with a very different car to the one that they've ended up racing with this season. And I'm sure most of you now know the struggles that Mercedes have been through with their version, their B-spec version of that car. They've struggled with this bouncing, this porpoising phenomenon that's hampered them so badly in terms of not even being able to work on performance because they've been constantly fighting fires in terms of getting the bouncing under control. Many people questioned Mercedes after one or two races and saw how badly they were struggling and asked the question, well, can't you just go back to the old spec car? Can't you go back to this car that turned up in Barcelona for the very first pre-season test and looked at least competitive? It looked stable. It didn't have anywhere near the bouncing problems they've been suffering so greatly with in recent races. So surely the answer is just go back to what you had because it was better, right? I don't think that is the answer. And I don't think it's the answer for Aston Martin either. The reason that they have stuck with this concept in terms of Mercedes, the reason they've persisted with a concept that's been causing them so many problems. They've been losing out on a whole host of points. There's no way they've been challenging for race wins. They see a championship slipping away and yet they've persisted with a concept that's clearly causing them so many difficulties. Why on earth would they do that? They've done it because they have a true belief that that concept offers them greater potential in the end. It offers them greater development potential as they move through this season and potentially even into next, given that the rules stay the same. And I'm sure it's exactly the same scenario at Aston Martin. They felt like there were limitations in terms of how far they could develop that car in its previous iteration. And so they have moved on to a different configuration that they believe will offer some longer-term benefits, more scope for development over a longer period, that hopefully in the end will offer greater success. But in the short term, it might take some time for them to fully understand that, to fully get their heads around it, to understand what the weaknesses and strengths are where the biggest opportunities might lie in terms of its setup and any future development in new parts they might wanna bring to the racetrack too. Those things do take time, but if you firmly believe that the opportunity lies at the end of that and the opportunity is greater than the opportunity that you had prior to that, well, then it's a path surely worth following. Some short-term pain might be put to one side in pursuit of some longer term gains and potentially some even greater success towards the end of that time. And herein lies, I think, another perfect lesson from the pit lane that we can apply to our everyday lives. This idea that taking a step sideways or even a step backwards, if we believe it's the right thing to do, if we believe it might offer greater benefits in the end, is not something we should shy away from. We should not necessarily always be looking for the big success right now, today, instant gratification. We've become accustomed to that in our lives. We live in a society that condones that, even supports that. These social media algorithms that so many of us live our lives by absolutely encourage instant gratification. They don't want us to wait. They want us to do it now. They want us to hit the button. They want us to like and follow and subscribe. But you've got to do it now. The world that we live in is often so against taking a longer term view. The political society that we exist within is an exact example of that. Political parties in power, they can't be making decisions because in 10 or 15 years from now, we might see some greater benefits of it. Of course, that's what they should be doing, but they don't do that because they're working on a much shorter term basis. Their biggest driver is that they get re-elected. So making a decision that in 10 years time might relinquish some benefits for wider society. Well, that's no good, is it? Because they may not even be in power at that point. They may well have lost an election and be the forgotten heroes by the time we eventually get to see those benefits. Nobody will remember that it was them that did it all that time ago they've got to think more short term. And I believe that our world that we exist in today is moving more and more in that direction. Whereas these bigger decisions, these longer term decisions, the decisions that could pay out much bigger in the end are being sidelined for the quicker decisions, the instant decisions that might offer some really quick, short term, but cheap benefits. Benefits that might run out, that might pay out quickly, but not pay out for very long. Thinking about this made me want to tell you the story of what happened to me when I first left McLaren. I'd been at McLaren for almost 10 years. A dream job, a dream career, something I'd dreamt of for many years, even before getting there. And I had achieved that dream. I went through a wonderful time, had an incredible experience. And then we won the World Championship with Lewis Hamilton. And that was after being there for nearly a decade. Now, working in that world, living that life, demands a huge amount of sacrifice on your personal life. And in my personal life, I'd gone through a divorce. I had children that I was no longer living with. And yeah, therefore, I was only seeing them at weekends. And yet I was working every weekend. I was away. I was in a different country. It became unsustainable for me. So after winning the World Championship with Lewis Hamilton, it felt like if ever there was a moment where I had to break away from this world and embark on a new life, this was going to be it. A life that was centred much more around my children and my family, around being there for them, having asked them to sacrifice so much for me for so many years prior to that. And so I made this big decision, a really tough decision, but a decision that I was confident that I was doing for all the right reasons. And I stepped away from the team. And I did that without a major plan in place. I just knew that I couldn't be traveling to the same extent that I'd been doing for so many years because it was gonna start to really hurt me and my children in an even greater capacity now that our personal circumstances had changed. And so I left the team. And I left the team, as I said, without a major plan. I had to come up with something, of course, because I had to pay the bills. And so actually, I started a small business just to keep some money coming in. And it did. Not very much money, but it kept things ticking over and enabled me to survive. But in the meantime, I still had this burning desire to be involved in this industry that had taken up so much of my life, that I'd become so ingrained in. I was now an expert in the industry of Formula 1. I had so much experience and expertise in this industry. I'd fine-tuned my craft. I'd grown through an organisation to a position of power and influence. I'd gained so much experience along the way, worked with so many unbelievably brilliant people, elite people in every element of that entire business culture inside Formula One. And I didn't want to just let that go. I had so much to offer the world of Formula One, I felt I just wasn't sure in what capacity that would be. Because for me, Formula One was all about getting on a plane and travelling to the other side of the world to attend a Grand Prix event. But it began to dawn on me that there's so many other aspects to this industry. I was now watching races as a fan and appreciating the sport from a very different perspective. And one of the things that I began to appreciate very quickly was that whilst... The Formula One fans are so passionate, particularly in the UK where I live. They're passionate. They are hungry for the sport. They're knowledgeable about the sport and they want to know more. And I had so much knowledge, so much understanding, so much expertise and experience of the sport from a totally different perspective than most other fans had. I had a unique perspective within this arena that I was now watching the sport I'd seen it and been part of it. I'd lived it from the inside, from inside of this secretive, mystical world that I now realised all fans wanted to get access to, but couldn't. Well, I could give them that access. I began by writing stories just on a blog, a blog page that I set up myself. There was no finance involved. There was no revenue being generated. I did it because I wanted to share those experiences. I realized my experiences had value to others. And so I started writing away, article after article after article, day and night. I wrote and wrote and wrote. I had no experience of writing. I wasn't a journalist. I had no journalistic experience at all. The last thing I'd ever written was an essay when I was at school but I knew I had something to say. I just didn't quite know how I was going to say it. So I started putting pen to paper and writing these things down. Gradually, I began uploading these articles to a website, a blog that I would set up myself. And then occasionally i would start being brave enough to offer some of these articles to magazines, to other websites, just for free to get the stories out there, just so people could get this understanding that I was so privileged to have had. And gradually, I grew more and more confident in my writing ability. I began to develop my own style. I began to be confident in putting the words down on paper in a way that I believed other people would understand and would grasp onto. I grew to start enjoying this writing experience and in every spare moment that wasn't taken up by running this small business that I'd started, a business unrelated in any way to Formula One, I was writing away. I was starting to post these articles on a Twitter account that I'd set up. And I began sharing them more and more. And more and more, other people began liking those articles, responding to those articles, asking more questions that then prompted further writing and more articles. And before I knew it, I was enjoying this process so much and I felt like I had so much to say that the business that I'd set up, I was struggling to keep up with because I was spending so much time writing. And yet still, I was earning no money from it. I was faced with this dilemma. Do I continue to push on this business that, yes, had delivered a reasonable amount of success, was paying my bills just about? I mean, I was not earning a huge amount of money from it. It was a business that had potential to grow and become a lot more successful if I was willing to dedicate the amount of time that it required to do so. But in the end, I wasn't convinced that I could give it that amount of time. I wasn't passionate enough about it and yet had so much more passion for the thing that I enjoyed doing that I felt I had lots to share within and yet was bringing in no money at the time. I felt there was potential on that side of what I was doing. And so I took the very difficult decision along with my wife who had to support me through this process to give up the business. And my wife could just about manage the mortgage payments. We struggled for a long period of time with me earning almost no money. But I was utterly convinced that it was the right decision. It was the right thing to do because in the end, it would generate some longer term success. I knew I had something to offer the world of Formula One, given the position that I'd been in, given the things I'd seen, the things I'd done, the people I'd worked with. People wanted to know what it was like to work with Lewis Hamilton. What it was like to work with Fernando Alonso, Kimi Raikkonen, Ron Dennis. What was it like inside that incredible McLaren factory? How does a team like McLaren get their freight from the UK out to Australia? How do they manage to assemble the garage and the pit wall in such short space of time? How do they go about making pit stops as fast as we see them on television? All of these questions and so many more... I had the answers to, because I'd had this privileged position of being on the inside of a sport so many people were so passionate and dedicated to. They were so interested in finding out more about. There had to be greater potential for me in pursuing that line of my career development, even though it seemed like a giant step backwards in the short term. Financially, my wife and and I struggled through that period of time, but we managed. Thanks to her, we managed to keep the mortgage ticking over. We managed to pay the bills. And eventually, gradually, people started paying money for my articles. Tiny amounts of money. 50 pounds here, 100 pounds there. But it was a start. And I had so much belief in the end goal. I had so much belief in the potential of this particular development path that it was worth taking. In the same way Mercedes and Aston Martin continued to believe in a development path they knew could offer something greater in the end, I followed exactly the same process. And of course, what happened was the articles began to take off. People did start paying for my writing and eventually the BBC picked up on some of those writings and asked me to come along and be a pit lane reporter on their Radio 5 Live broadcast. And I went along and I experienced that and I loved it. And I again felt I had so much to offer. I had something to say. And now I had a platform to say it. And so that was the next element of my career development that I chased. And I chased it with a passion. And I didn't let it go until I got there. And so it was that passion and belief in something that would offer the greater good in the end. Something that I was passionate about, that gave me huge joy, that gave me great satisfaction, that I also knew gave great satisfaction to so many other people, that on the face of it seemed like a crazy decision when I took it. I was stepping away from a business that was bringing in money to go and take on a new business that was bringing in nothing, that was offering nothing. And yet in the longer term, of course, I believed it would offer something and that became true. It was exactly the same in the decision that I took to leave the team. I was stepping away from a dream job, a dream that thousands and thousands of people would give their right arm to be in. But I knew that. I knew how much this was a desirable job. I knew how much I desired it for so many years prior to that. But I also knew that the greater good was that my family was okay. that I could see my children, that I could build that relationship with my children and it wouldn't be lost because I was away at the only opportunities when I had to see them. And so in the end, in the long run, that decision was the right one. That decision enabled me to spend more time at home at a time when that was so valuable to me. But on the face of it, I was stepping away from a substantial salary. I was stepping away from a dream job, a position that so many others desired to have. A position that I would desired for so long up until the moment I'd got it. A position I'd been utterly grateful for and privileged to be in. But it was the right decision. And because I believed in it so much, I was confident enough to take that tough decision. I was thinking longer term than just today. And that's the very point I'm trying to make here. It is okay to take a sideways or even backward step if you firmly believe it's the right call for you. Society doesn't allow us to do that very easily. It doesn't encourage us to do that. And so we become reluctant to make those kind of decisions. We frown on other people who make those kind of decisions. The number of people who looked at me questioned what I was doing. Even at times my wife questioned, understandably questioned, what I was doing when it came to pursuing this career that in the short term offered no income. That was a tough call. That was a tough conversation that I had to have with Claire. But we had that conversation. We discussed it over time. And once she could see how much belief I had in it being the right call, she backed me all the way. And I'm really pleased she did because obviously now I've developed a second career still around motorsport, still around Formula One. I'm still sharing my stories, my experiences, my expertise. I've written a book about the whole process. I'm doing a podcast that you're listening to right now based off a career that I had inside that inner sanctum of Formula One's pit lane. A place that I believe offers so much value, offered so much value to me that I pursued a career that didn't even exist for me at that point, that wasn't even visible to me, that I had no experience in. I developed skills that I had never used since my school days in order to try and pursue that career. And eventually, I appreciated, or I came to realize that one of the strengths that perhaps I hadn't identified up until that point, for me, I hope, is communication, is being communicative, being able to communicate ideas and experiences, technical solutions, technical concepts of Formula One cars, in a way that people who don't necessarily have the expertise and experience that I'm privileged to have are able to understand. That's what I hope I've been able to create this second career out of. And I hope I'm doing a good job of it. I feel like I'm doing a good job of it. Ultimately, I'm enjoying it. And that's probably what I'm most proud of. I am in a career today that stems from the career that I started all of those years ago, a career that i dreamt of in my late teenage years, and I'm still getting a huge amount of enjoyment from a career that is directly linked to that. But it only came about by taking a giant leap backwards, a giant leap off a racing train, not knowing where I was going to land, not having any idea where it might lead me to, but having a firm belief that I was doing the right thing that there was potential at the end of this unknown adventure, a greater potential than the path that I was already existing upon. In the same way that Mercedes stuck firm to their belief that these slim side pods, this updated design that had actually induced a whole number of problems for them, prevented them from being challengers at any of the races we've had so far. They had a firm belief that that concept would offer the greatest advantage in the long term. Once they fully got to grips with it, once they understood it, once they cured some of the problems they found with it, they felt there was a huge amount of untapped potential in that concept that could lead on to the success that they are dreaming of having at some point. A success that I have no doubt they will eventually get to. I imagine the very same thought process is exactly what's going on at Aston Martin after introducing their B-Spec car that on the face of it looks slower, looks like it's taken a step backwards. They're doing it because they believe in its potential. And that was exactly the same as the way I thought about leaving McLaren, a difficult decision, and then about leaving the business that I'd set up to pursue a career that I had no experience in taking a leap of faith because I believed there was potential in there somewhere. I just needed to find a way to unlock it. And I truly believe that having a fear of that unknown future, of that leap of faith, is something that must be holding so many people back. How many people are in a job that doesn't suit them, that they don't enjoy, that causes them problems in their personal lives, that Ask so much sacrifice of them for so little reward. How many people are in that situation? How many people dread going to work on a Monday morning and yet have something that they might be able to forge a career out of that they could enjoy? I appreciate it's not always that simple. I was very lucky to have my wife able to keep the mortgage ticking over whilst I embarked on this new career. It wasn't easy. We struggled through that period of time, but we managed to make it work. I bet there's a lot of people out there that could potentially be in a similar situation, that have a passion, that have a set of skills or a set of experiences that could generate future potential, that could generate a new career, a new business, but they need to take the leap of faith to get it started. You don't have to leap off one train before you get onto the next. If you have a passion, if you have something you're interested in that brings you joy, that potentially could offer a career lifeline in the future, can you get it started while still keeping your former job, your former career ticking along in the background? Can you be working on that, formulating a plan at weekends or in the evenings? Can you start putting ideas down on paper? If it's something along the lines of what I did, can you start writing articles in the evenings? Do it on your lunch break. Do it over the weekends. Find some time. Get up a bit early to start that ball rolling. Unless you start it, you can never, ever possibly hope to unlock the potential of whatever idea you have floating around in the back of your mind. And what you don't want to do is get to a point in your life where it becomes too late where you start asking yourself the question, what would have happened if I'd just given it a go? Where you may have spent years in a job that you didn't enjoy, that didn't give you fulfillment, that didn't get the most out of you. And yet you had these ideas in the back of your mind that offered so much greater potential and yet you didn't act on them. Don't let yourself get to that point. The first step to exploring a new idea is taking the decision to go and explore that idea. And it doesn't have to be at the expense of your existing career at this stage. They can overlap with each other until a point where you realise there is potential in it. If you fully believe there's a potential in it that could offer something greater further down the line, maybe don't be too afraid of taking a step sideways, even taking a step backwards, because the greater potential is something that could offer so much more value. Do you want to spend the next 20 years of your life in a job, in a relationship, in a situation that leaves you every week unfulfilled, even feeling miserable? Or do you want to take that decision to start exploring an idea that you've got that could potentially offer so much more potential in the long run, enabling you to enjoy those next 20 years to an incredible level, to a much more fulfilling level? to a level that enables you to look back when you get to the end of that period without the regrets of having not taken that initial decision today. Only you truly know your potential, so have a think about it. Start the process by just giving some time to give it a thought. And listen, guys, that's the end of today's show. I wanna thank you all so, so much for spending the time and hanging on right to the very end. I appreciate it. If you can spare a moment to give me a rating and a review in the Apple Podcast Store if that's where you're listening, that would mean the world to me. If you're listening anywhere else, just give me a like, a follow, subscribe to the channel, or at the very least, tell a friend about this podcast. I really want to grow it. I want to spread the word. I want to share the knowledge and expertise that I've had the privilege to experience in my time in the Formula One world with as many people as possible. And I need your help to do that. Thank you so much, guys. And whatever it is you're doing this week, don't forget, do the right things, do the things right.